Okay, and and how how uh, much is the city of Ottawa going to be uh, requested to contribute to the project? Currently, we're in um, discussions with a number of people with regards to our local share plan. As you know, that uh, with the local share, a lot of that is coming through either the found, uh, the fundraising that's being done and through our foundation or looking at a number of different opportunities to create different revenues. And as Graham was mentioning, different partnerships as well. So we currently don't have all that um, under completed at this point. It will come as part of the the overall uh, strategy with the, the new site, the new hospital build when it comes forward. Okay, um, it, it'd be nice to know what we're gonna be requested if it's 200 million or 300 million um, before we start to build on the site. Um, have the costs that were originally estimated at the 2.8 billion for the whole build out, including the parking garage uh, was from 2016 and I had sent a separate email, but I haven't got a response yet. And I'm just wondering what, what is the cost now? What is the projected cost now? And, and we've heard a lot from um, uh, Mr. Willis recently about increasing costs uh, per month. So I'm just wondering where, where do we stand now in terms of the total cost of the hospital? So what I can update you on there, as you know, this is a very large multi-year project. And I don't think we ever would have thought that uh, we would be where we're at today and, and look to see things coming out of the pandemic. Um, I can tell you that as we've been going through our costing reviews with the province and with Infrastructure Ontario, that they are taking into account any of the additional costs as part of the overall total project and incorporating the escalation that they're seeing that has happened over the last few years and looking forward. With that though, you need, we do have a capped amount of money uh, by the government um, that would incorporate and take those things into consideration. And that is one of the main reasons today why we continue to push and not delay any further, because the more and more we delay, it really does impact the purchasing power that we do have. It's similar to what we're seeing today in our own society, whether it's with regards to the supplies of food or equipment or just housing. So these are ones of the these things have been taken into consideration as we go through and we look at a project that stems over multi-years. And um, so yes, it's, it is incorporated. And as we continue to build out the main site of the hospital, you will see the, the uh, additional costs come forward, but you can be assured that they have been taken into consideration by the province and uh, Infrastructure Ontario. Okay, and does that cap 2.8 billion? I don't have the, the final details of that at this point, but that will be coming for when the costing is complete. Hello, and welcome to the Fulcrum Radio Show. I'm your host, Damian Piper. The Fulcrum is the University of Ottawa's legendary English newspaper, produced on the University of Ottawa campus in downtown Ottawa, the capital city of the North on the Great Turtle Island. That was Councillor Sean Menard you heard in the cold open from Thursday's planning committee meeting over the proposed garage for the new Civic Hospital he was speaking to Joanne Reed, 
She is the Ottawa Hospital's Executive Vice President and Chief of Planning and Development Officer. The proposed model, originally set with a $2.8 billion price tag back in 2016, is currently expected to cost a lot more, with rising construction costs, which leads us to our feature interview. Today on the show, Dr. Barry Bruce, He's an Ottawa-based physician who first established his family care center in 1972. Years later, he has also served as the chief of staff at the Queensway Carleton Hospital. He's writing frequently appears in the Ottawa Citizen, and he's here to tell us why bigger hospitals aren't always better. And Emma Williams, our science editor, is in conversation with Zoe Landry, a PhD student at the University of Ottawa who has been researching ancient wolves and comparing their fossils to wolves from our modern era, trying to better understand the species. Wolves have been around for many a millennia, and her groundbreaking research sheds new light on how a species from as far back as the Pleistocene era was able to survive extinction and continue to evolve. But first, it's time for headlines. Today, reading headlines, we have Fulcrum staff writers, Gabrielle Musichka and Shaley Shaw. Welcome to the broadcast. Co-op buildings are disproportionately recognized in the New York housing market, making up 74% of the Manhattan market. These buildings operate through directors of private corporations who make up a small group of shareholders for the building. They oversee aspects of the building ranging from finances to maintenance. Unlike alternatives to co-op buildings, these properties and their co-op boards are not legally required to disclose the reasons for denying applicants. Despite the Fair Housing Act, which federally prohibits housing discrimination, these boards are able to systemically discriminate in this market-driven co-op system. A researcher found that most financially sound individuals were left feeling as though they were being denied due to an aspect of their identity. With more conversions to co-op buildings happening and the lack of adaptation to modern transparency standards within the system, New Yorkers are in danger. Both renters and buyers are presented with fewer housing options in an already expensive and scarce city in terms of housing supply. The oldest Caribbean flamingo in North America at the age of 67, Betty of the Smithsonian's National Zoo has passed away this month. Named for Betty White, Betty was born in 1954 and would often stand on the periphery of the zoo as if she was watching over the younger feathered creatures. Betty raised foster chicks in her time at the zoo as well. Now, the oldest flamingos at the National Zoo are six birds in their mid-30s. Concerns by University of Ottawa students living in Leblanc residence have been brought to the public this week. Residents of the building have been facing a number of issues and challenges since they moved in this past fall. After presenting concerns to university resource groups and protection services, many issues remained unresolved. Students report broken locks on main doors, which led to break-ins from the homeless community and most recently from members of the Freedom Convoy protests. The university has denied that the most recent break-in was a convoy attendee. Additionally, students have reported unclean spaces. This includes poorly kept showers and kitchen spaces, as well as rodent and critter feces. With no community advisors living in the building until the winter term, students were left without many places to look for help. The University Student Union has recommended reaching out to the Student Rights Centre and has raised the concerns with the university. They are awaiting a response from the residents to continue the conversation. 
The National Butterfly Center in Texas has closed due to security concerns after being targeted by far-right conspiracies. It became the focal point of baseless right-wing smears and conspiracy theories about the U.S.-Mexico border. The nonprofit center has faced harassment, threats, and one alleged assault since they tried to stop the former U.S. President Donald Trump's administration from using its land to build part of its border wall. Executive Director Marianne Trevino stated, If we cannot connect programs like school field trips and be open to the public, to our visitors and members, we can no longer focus on the butterflies and the bugs and the birds, all of the critical pollinators that contribute to healthy ecosystems. The North American Butterfly Association, which runs the center, announced on Wednesday that the center would remain closed to the public for the immediate future. Saskatchewan will end its vaccine passport program this Sunday, February 13th. Additionally, the indoor masking restrictions will remain in place only until the end of the month. This will make them the first province to remove the vaccine mandate and will qualify them as having some of the least restrictive COVID-19 guidelines in the country. The federal conservative leader, Aaron O'Toole, was removed from his position after a caucus vote last Wednesday. Manitoba MP Candace Bergen will become the interim leader and member for Carleton, Pierre Poiliev, was the first to place his bid for the leadership race. Both Bergen and Poiliev have vocalized support for the demonstrations and have criticized Prime Minister Justin Trudeau on his messaging towards the protesters. As the Saskatchewan party displays support for the causes of the convoy, such as ending mandates, it is yet to be seen how this response will be taken by the protesters, both in Ottawa and across the country. Protests in Ottawa are still ongoing, despite the declaration of a state of emergency by the City of Ottawa and Ottawa Police. Alberta Premier Jason Kenney apologized on Wednesday for comparing the treatment of unvaccinated people to the stigma faced by HIV and AIDS patients during the 1980s. Kenny first drew the comparison on Tuesday during a news conference where he announced Alberta's plan to immediately start phasing out COVID-19 public health restrictions, including the vaccine passport system. After facing backlash online from the opposition NDP and advocates for the LGBTQ community, Kenny issued an apology on Twitter, describing his comments as an inappropriate analogy. That was a wrong analogy to make, and I apologize for having done so, said Kenny. Violence and protests have begun in schools in the Indian state of Karnataka over the banning of hijabs. In January, six women from a government college in the district of Udupi began protesting after they were asked to remove their headscarves to attend classes. Other schools began implementing and enforcing similar bans soon after. Since these issues have developed, the protests and the tensions between students have increased. Some say, since the leadership of the Bharatiya Janata Party, there has been a rise in anti-Muslim violence. The leader of the opposition, the National Congress Party, is critical of these bans. Last week, nine of the Muslim students of a college in Udupi were banned from entering and could not attend class if they were veiled. This week, students from another college in the same district were allowed into the school but were forced to sit in segregated classrooms. The proposed civic development plan for the Ottawa Hospital is anything but small. Right now, here in Ottawa, and as well as in Windsor, Ontario, the Ontario government is moving forward with a plan to bring more hospital beds and bigger medical facilities to both regions. The government says, we need more beds. Other experts argue that we need more beds, yes, but they need to be closer to the communities that need them the most. Dr. Barry Bruce, a family physician from Ottawa and the former chief of staff 
from the Queensway Carlton Hospital is here to tell us why, when it comes to hospitals, bigger isn't always better. Dr. Bruce, thank you for taking the time to speak with me. Could you tell me about yourself and your practice? So I uh, started a family medicine practice actually in 1973 with my wife. So that must sound like the dark ages to you, but it seems very recent to me. And our practice currently has over 20,000 patients. It has, uh, you know, 13 doctors, about 65 staff. We were one of the first family health teams in Ontario and worked on the various models for Ontario, including family health teams. So we were one of the first 13 practices to model some of these new approaches. I've also been associated with various hospitals, uh, starting with a small town hospital in Elmont when we first started practice. And when the Queensway Carlton was built in 1978, uh, became a member of the staff there. And um, I was chief of staff of the Queensway Carlton Hospital from 1989 to 1995. Again, that sounds like a long time ago, but things have not uh, not really changed that much, I think, in terms of uh, the, the broad overview that we're going to be talking about. You've made the argument that bigger isn't always better when it comes to hospitals and medical centers. You say that when hospitals get too big, they actually become inefficient. Could could you explain that a little bit? Sure. This is uh, this is information that I knew uh, being around hospitals and management uh, for so many years, but I don't think I quite knew why I knew it at that time. That there was a uh, some sort of U curve where you could be too small to be efficient as a hospital, but you could also be too big. And when I started to look into this and write about it, I found that there was some relevant literature out there, some of it very recent. So a major uh, review article, Systematic Search in 19, that came out in 2017. And surprisingly enough, at least the authors state that the only previous large meta-analysis like this had been done in 1969, which was possibly why I sort of knew about it, but didn't know why I knew about it. So this, this new study confirms that hospitals can be too small to be efficient, but they can also be too big. And the limit of efficiency for a hospital seems to be around 400 beds. Above that, start to see inefficiencies. There's no publication I've seen. Any hospital over 600 beds does anything else, but just get less and less and less efficient. Probably hospitals below 150 to 200 beds are not all that efficient either. So there's a sweet spot in there. So to go a little deeper on that point, when the government says we need more beds because of overcrowding, what are some of the reasons that we have overcrowding in the first place? 
I think there's a it's a that's a good question, and I think it's complicated. I think one of the reasons we have overcrowding has to do with not enough prevention from the community. I've tried to promote in the Latin management meetings uh, that have gone on for the area the idea that probably primary care and public health would have more success with community programs that prevent admissions to hospital. Hospitals themselves do their best, but you know, a patient walks in through the emergency door and you've got them, you have to deal with them. Many visits to emergency are not necessary. Some of them are at night, patients are a little confusing and they end up being admitted crowding people together in hospitals and in hallways uses up other resources and i'm sure you've heard of paramedic services being unable to respond to emergencies because so many of the paramedics were tied up in emergency wards unable to offload patients so certainly the you know the civic has probably been one of the being one of the larger hospitals is also one of the larger offenders in this regard, but it's true of every, every other hospital with an emergency ward. So we probably, uh, because hospital beds are so expensive, governments hesitate to increase their number relative to the population. And we're probably a little on the low side in Ontario compared to, I believe, all of the other provinces and low on the ratio of physicians to population as well. But I think Ontario has found some ways to get around that, that uh, may broaden who provides care in Ontario to include nurse practitioners and uh, pharmacists in family practices, for example. That's uh, our type of practice where we have uh, a large number of healthcare personnel who are not physicians who provide, help us to provide uh, very effective care, probably more effective care, especially our pharmacist. Uh, she points out, well, doctor, did you really need to use three drugs here? We could maybe use one or, or none. So yes, and then there's the impact of disease. So every fall, Hospitals have to open up more beds because of surges due to influenza. And I, I don't think anywhere on the planet you would not be aware now of the impact of COVID and the pandemic on the hospital beds. Mm -hmm. So hospital beds are expensive. They should be treated as not, you know, the least, least desirable destination for patients, for one thing, but also as being extremely valuable resources when they're really needed. Now, in regards to primary care, could you give us a little definition of what that is and then sort of your view on how that how it's changed over the last few years to create this idea that we need to start putting everybody into one place? Yeah, I'm not sure putting everybody into one place, but primary care refers to the patient's option to seek help within the healthcare system. So at the moment, you can uh, seek help through primary care family physicians' offices, uh, some pediatric offices, and hospital emergency rooms. Those are all primary sites of primary care. 
Now, the newer models, of course, include uh, access to pharmacists and allied health personnel, as in family health teams, but that's now only available to about 25% of Ontarians. When it comes to hospital management, you've argued against a hospital trust and for independent management. Uh, could you explain sort of those two different modeling approaches? Yeah. So this, you think of hospital trusts uh, as being more an American concept. Actually, the more recently in the late 90s, the Civic and the General were merged. So, and it was called the Ottawa Hospital. So just for clarity, I want to say that I'm referring to the Civic Hospital, the Ottawa Civic Hospital, the Civic Campus. That's the campus that is proposing to enlarge so I don't think there's any evidence that that merging two already large hospitals uh, can produce anything other than inefficiencies. I think that the current expansion of the civic hospital, since it's already at 600 beds, well above most estimates of where this U-curve starts where costs start to go up of about 400 beds. I don't think there's any evidence that the civic hospital should even remain at that level of beds being opened, let alone spend $2.8 billion on potentially doubling that amount. So to say that this is a, a, a good idea, I don't, I don't, I haven't found too many people who actually agree that that is a good idea, but they're stumped when it comes to alternatives. So as the former chief of staff at the Queensway Carlton Hospital, how do you see the potential uh, for labor disputes or disruptions from the point of nurses or other staff, if we were to put them all into a bigger facility, will that create more problems? I think potentially, I think that's probably one source of inefficiency is just the sheer complexity and the fact that labor pools get concentrated. The size of the labor pool required for the civic hospital becomes so huge that you have to have employees coming from large distances around where they're employed. So I think there's some inequities and dissatisfaction built into just that. I have to travel three quarters of an hour to get to work and then I have to pay for parking. And furthermore, I'm unpopular in the neighborhood because we've had such an impact on it. So bringing so many employees into one environment not only leads to more labor disputes, but also potentially more spread of infection amongst employees. So concentration of people, I think, always has a major, has major downsides. Is there anything else that do you have any closing remarks or anything that came to mind that you, you wanted to, to drive home? Yeah. Well, I think, um, I think what I'm proposing is an alternative to uh, this idea of concentrating everybody in one spot on the experimental farm 
potentially bringing 20,000 people a day to that one spot, requiring as yet unpaid for extensions to the LRT and many other as yet unpaid for expenses for infrastructure that are just not covered. So if you think of the Ottawa Civic Hospital as being a four-layered layer cake and triangular-shaped, and the bottom layer being the emergency ward. So there are a tremendous number of emergencies there. The next layer is also quite large, and it's the secondary level of care. Great number of patients. So the emergency ward and the secondary level care are what the Queensway Carleton Hospital represents. Tertiary and quaternary care are what the civic site adds. And those are the more advanced uh, levels of care. So it can include you know, very complex surgery like obesity surgery, neurosurgery, cardiac surgery, transplants, experimental surgery, and there's other kinds of medical interventions as well, you know, cancer, special cancer interventions and so on. Also many advanced imaging techniques and so on. So that's tertiary and quaternary care. I think that the civic hospital already excels in that area. I can't speak for them with regard to their academic interest in secondary level and primary care, but I think probably what they're most proud of is their tertiary and quaternary care. So I'm proposing they drop most, uh, probably a majority of their patients by dropping secondary level care and getting rid of their emergency ward. I'm proposing that set those slack for that secondary level care and emergency level care be taken up by totally different institutions uh, through the city. Two or three probably would do it because these are large numbers of patients. And they need to be separate from the civic hospital. This, uh, the meta-analysis that I'm quoting also says that a hospital can't just split itself up and keep the management the same but you know, uh, provide care at different sites, it still retains that complexity that seems to lead to inefficiency. So that, that's the crux of what I'm proposing. And I've mentioned that once you get above four to 600 beds, you become inefficient. When you're talking about a $2.8 billion expansion, mm-hmm. you're also talking about quite possibly a two to three billion dollar operating cost. So we think 2.8 billion dollars is a lot to spend at one time and, and governments are choking a little bit on the on the size of that amount. Imagine if you have to spend that every year on operating costs. So it's a rule of thumb that I have at the moment that has yet to be challenged, but it could be wrong at this scale, that the the operating costs, in other words, the yearly operating costs tend to mirror the cost of construction. And if they're, say, they're just $2 billion, 
just $2 billion in operating costs once the hospital fully expands. And suppose, as the literature shows, that you have something like 9 to 10% inefficiency within that $2 billion every year. You're talking about wasting $200 million a year. That $200 million a year can actually run a small hospital. And the other thing that comes along with inefficiency and is not only cost problems, but also quality problems. So it's very difficult to be inefficient and have high quality as an outcome. You usually have lower quality as an outcome. Thank you so much for speaking with me today, sir. Yeah, okay, and good luck to you. Emma Williams is our science editor. She joins me now. Hey, Emma. Hi, Damien. How are you? I'm well, thank you. And what's new in science this week? So this week, I interviewed with Zoe Landry, who's a PhD candidate here at the University of Ottawa. And she works with Clément Bataille. And if you recognize that name, it's the same researcher who worked on the woolly mammoth study. And what did you and Zoe talk about? So we talked about her research involving the diets of Pleistocene wolves and comparing that to the diets of more recent wolves from around the 1960s. And how long ago were these ancient wolves? So her specimens were upwards of 30,000 years old and her most recent teeth specimens were 1960s. Oh, wow. That's a huge gap. Yes. Uh, well, I can't wait to hear it. Well, enjoy. I'm Zoe, obviously, and I'm a PhD student at the University of Ottawa in the Earth Sciences Department. My research is mostly focused on like Pleistocene megafauna, so like really large bodied mammals over the past like 50,000 years or so. And I'm really interested in questions regarding why certain species went extinct at the end of the ice age and why others didn't and how we can use them as kind of model species for ongoing climate change. So what traits make a species more or less prone to extinction based on, you know, climatic or other anthropogenic factors? What was the thought behind studying ancient wolves and then also comparing them to present day gray wolves? Yeah, so our idea was basically to look at what mechanism might have allowed gray wolves to survive because at the end of the Pleistocene, you know, over 70% of large mammal genera were wiped out in North America and carnivores were hit pretty hard in the Yukon. Um, out of, you know, the many species that were there, only two uh, large carnivores ended up surviving, the wolves and the brown bear. So we were really interested in you know, why wolves? Why why not the American lion? Why not the scimitar cat? Um, so it was kind of just like a, a perfect opportunity to have a window into what ancient wolves um, were doing and their similarities, possible differences with modern wolves, and trying to see if we can pinpoint, you know, what aspects of their ecology allowed them basically to survive this mass, well, technically not a mass extinction, but a very large extinction event. To better understand like the comparison you're making between the ancient gray wolves and like the current ones, can you maybe describe for me what the environment for both 
looks like and how they compare today. Totally. So during the Pleistocene, the Yukon was much colder and much drier. So not a lot of precipitation, you know, pretty much what was there was there in terms of like the snow and the ice. And it, we call it we call it a mammoth step. So it's basically a step tundra. So uh, very wide open grassland, you know, some shrubs here and there, uh, basically no trees, but with mammoths present. So you basically need mammoths to have a mammoth step. And nowadays, the Yukon, while it is, of course, still cold, uh, it is generally warmer and it's a little bit wetter. So they get a lot more precipitation in the form of snow. They have, you know, those annual winter summer cycles and there's a lot more trees. So it's a lot more of a boreal forest environment right now. So much more closed, not as open as it was during the Pleistocene. And like time-wise, when is this happening? Like middle, upper, lower? So my specimens uh, dated from anywhere greater than 44,000 years old to about like 20,000 years old. The average is about 30,000 years old, but uh, the end Pleistocene extinction occurred around 11.7 thousand years ago. And then our modern specimens were, I think mostly from the 1960s, we might've had one from the 1970s. So technically not modern, more recent, but yeah. modern is modern relative to the yeah. <laughs> What is dental microware, stable isotope dating, and how was that useful for your study? So we'll start with dental microware. So basically dental microware is these teeny, teeny, tiny, uh, only visible under a microscope wear patterns that are left on any animal's teeth as they eat something. So for wolves, we were particularly looking for pits and scratches. So two types of wear features that are commonly used. And what these tell you is basically the hardness of the food that they were eating. So if you see more pits, that's more indicative of them eating like harder foods. So like bone crunching behavior, uh, osteophagy, which like hyenas do. Um, but if we see mostly these long linear scratches, that kind of shows us that the teeth are sliding one over top of the other. And that's associated with uh, softer foods, meat slicing action in particular with wolves. So it's really useful to show us if wolves were like using more of a carcass. So if they had to consume more bones because maybe there was less food to go around, maybe they had been regulated to scavenging during the Pleistocene since there were so many other carnivores, or if they were most likely hunting, catching their own prey, and then were able to, to eat the good parts, like the good uh, like organs and flesh. And stable isotopes, this is what I'm most interested in. This is what my background largely is. Basically with stable isotope, the axiom is you are what you eat. So all of us, all animals, plants, uh, we have a certain isotope signature that's based on the food that we consume or, you know, the soil in which plants and such live. So I focus on carbon and nitrogen. Uh, the carbon isotopes are really useful because they kind of tell you if an animal was more feeding on like C3 plants or more C4 plants. So think like grasses versus corn, things like that. And nitrogen's really, really useful because it tells you where an animal sits in the food chain. So we don't get a, a huge offset, so a huge increase from carbon, from uh, like, you know, prey to consumer, but you do with nitrogen. So you can use it to really accurately place an animal in the food web. So you can see if it's, you know, top carnivore, it's, if it's more of a herbivore, things like that. So it's, it's more accurate than a uh, dental microware in terms of being able to tell what an animal, like exactly what it was eating, just because isotope signatures can be very specific. So there's a pretty big difference between say like what a horse's isotope signature would look like versus like 
a musk ox or even like a, a sheep just based on what they eat and where they fit in the food chain. So is it kind of similar to like when antlers grow on specific deer, like you can kind of take that and then pinpoint their location? Like were you able to do that? With exactly. Well? Yeah. You okay. just use different isotopes. So for that, you can use carbon and nitrogen, but that's more of a diet signature. For antlers, okay. you'd use something like strontium or okay, you use right. like lead as well, oxygen okay. as well. But it's the same same principle. It's just you are what you eat or you are where you eat. Okay. Um, that's kind of how I like to put it. So then you, know, you did the mic, dental microarray, stabilized cell dating. What, what did you find after? So based on our microarray, we found that they were basically eating the same types of material in the Pleistocene as they do you know, now or recently in the 1960s. So it was a lot of the scratches, so those linear features, which show us that they were mostly consuming you know, flesh, organs, all of those softer tissues. And there was you know, some pitting as you, know, you would expect, just because they can't perfectly pull the flesh just off the animal, they're going to have some bone in there. But that showed us that they were probably able to like be active hunters and catch and defend their own prey, even from all these other carnivores, which kind of threw the idea that others had proposed of, oh, you know, Pleistocene wolves were the bottom of the, the carnivore levels. They were scavenging. They couldn't catch their own. They couldn't stand up when in reality, they actually could. And they, they most likely were actively competing with these other carnivores for food resources. So that was really interesting, uh, kind of, uh, yay, go wolves, they're doing <laughs> cool things. So that was super cool. And then our isotopes basically showed us that in the past, Yukon wolves were really feeding mostly on horses, more than 50% of their diets were composed, um, most likely of horses. And, you know, they ate other things too, they probably ate, you know, some caribou, some doll sheep, uh, probably scavenged mammoths. I don't think that a pack of wolves even would have been able to take down a full-grown <laughs> mammoth. But what really stood out to us was that very clear signal that wolves in the past were really reliant on horses. So that kind of, that was really interesting to us because horses obviously went extinct in North America, around or at, no one's really quite sure yet, the dates aren't super conclusive, uh, but that, that end place to see an extinction so that shows us that wolves were actually able to switch their diets from horses, most being the majority of what they were eating in the Pleistocene, to what we now know that they eat. So mostly caribou, some moose, you know, associated small animals when maybe those are harder to find. What stood out to us was that wolves are flexible in their diets, but they require a large ungulate, so a large hoofed mammal, um, to kind of fulfill that, that main portion of their diet in order to survive. So it's really important for wolves that we manage to, you know, preserve these populations of large-bodied mammals in, you know, the Yukon and other parts of the Arctic where climate change is really rapidly changing the environments, has benefits for both the wolves and the, the large herbivores. So it's kind of a, a mutual um, conservation effort, uh, if you will. So, like, I know you mentioned that they shift their diet, like, I guess, how? Like, I know, I guess, I guess that's a weird question because they can just, you know, hunt something else, but it's kind of hard to like, visualize, I guess. Yeah, so it would probably have been a gradual change because, as we know, extinctions don't really happen overnight. So, uh, moose actually didn't enter um, the Yukon until after the Pleistocene extinction. So, 
they would have kind of, I think, waited mostly for the horses to kind of peter out and then realize, you know, wolves are smart. They're very intelligent animals. So they probably would have kind of realized, oh, okay, this is less abundant, but this is of generally similar size. You know, it has antlers, so maybe it's slightly scarier. Um, but wolves are pretty brave. They're, they're pretty cool. So it would have just been that, that shift to noticing, I'm assuming that there were, you know, less of this initial prey and more now of this initial prey which would be easier to track, easier to find in greater herds because horses live in smaller herds, caribou live in much bigger herds. Just kind of an overall, like a simplicity shift, I think, and a shift of necessity because obviously the horses are all gone. So I'm wondering then for the other carnivores that did not survive this large extinction, do you know maybe why they didn't survive? Yeah, so there are some ideas. So um, the other large carnivores that didn't survive, the main ones that come to mind are the short-faced bear, which is the largest terrestrial carnivore to ever exist, which is super cool. The American lion and the scimitar cat. So the scimitar cat is really understudied. There's not a lot of fossils of it, unfortunately. They're, so they're probably quite rare just to begin with. But it's thought that potentially they were really reliant on very large animals. So they were possibly mammoth specialists. That has been proposed. But mm. again, more research is definitely needed to um, determine that. So it's thought that these carnivores might have been a little less flexible than wolves. And wolves actually almost have an advantage over them because they were the smallest, meaning that their energetic needs are, even though they they operate in pack systems, they're a little bit lower than these larger carnivores. So that's been a possible something that's been pitched no one totally knows why wolves were able to survive other than you know maybe this study suggests that you know they're, they're pretty flexible in their diets they're pretty smart they were able to switch whereas the other ones just weren't able to felids are also so like the cats like the american lion scimitar cats are also known to be slightly less adaptable to changes in temperature they tend to be really specialized into what they can handle and canids so things like you know Dogs and wolves and whatnot are thought to be a little bit more like flexible in the, the climatic niches that they can live in. So that's also a possibility, but a lot more research on specifically like the American lion and scimitar cat is, uh, is really needed. And then short-faced bear, just really big. You lose big animals. You don't have enough, enough food to like sustain yourself and just go extinct. But the cat question is something that I think really needs to be answered. And I'm really excited to see the research that comes out on that in the future that I'm, I'm hoping will be done. Well, um, I'm just wondering then, is there any other research you have going on or, you know, what sort of next for you in terms of? Yeah. Uh, so on? I'm currently trying to, well, getting my master's research on polar bear diets, historic polar bear diets ready for publication. We basically took a time span of, I think it was about 50 years. So early 1920s to the mid 1970s, we looked at diets based on, again, stable isotope signatures from their bones to try and figure out what they were eating in the past. And if they might be, you know, more flexible than we think, maybe they're not regulated to just eating seal specialists and, you know, spoiler alert, they really do rely on seals. Oh, um, no. but they do also, <laughs> I know, I know. But they do also scavenge whales. Whales were actually pretty important contributors to their diets in the past. So that kind of tells us that, you know, maybe maybe whale scavenging from, you know, Inuit kills or, you know, if a whale just dies and the carcass washes up on the shore, that could be a really important way by which, you know, current and future polar bears might be able to manage climate change. 
So that's cool. I like that. Mm -hmm. um, and then the, my PhD research is actually on Yukon and a little bit of Alaskan horses. So I'm really trying to figure out, you know, how many species there were because there have been like, I think six to seven, depending on who you ask, species pitched for like the Yukon alone. And it's, in my opinion, very unlikely that that many species of horses actually coexisted. I think it was probably just one. Um, so I'm trying to figure out how many species there were based on um, the shape, like the morphology of their teeth and also ancient molecular DNA, which hopefully we will actually obtain. It's kind of a gamble when you work on stuff that old. Um, and also trying to, you know, figure out when they actually went extinct. So radiocarbon dating a bunch and trying to look at, you know, what might have caused their extinction. So try to reconstruct their ecology again with the stable isotopes, um, just because we're really not sure totally what wiped out the horses in North America, considering that they survived in other parts of the world. So mm. could be, you know, maybe these ones were just less durable. Could be that the vegetation changes were a lot more. Human hunting pressures were too high. It's totally up in the air and there's not really a good answer for it right now. Okay. Mostly what I'm working on at the moment. Well, thank you so much. And thank yeah, you again thank you. for meeting with me. I, I look forward to reading that whenever it gets published. Oh, well, thank you. That's very <laughs> sweet. Here with the latest of what's happening with the GGs is the Fulcrum Sports Editor, Jasmine McKnight. I am thrilled. On Friday, our Gigi's OUA teams are getting things started. The basketball teams are hitting the road to take on Queens with the hopes of staying undefeated. Then, on Saturday, both teams will be back on campus to host the Gales. The women tip off at 5 and the men follow at 8. Unfortunately, the men's hockey team is facing two more postponed games as their Friday night and Saturday afternoon home games will not be played this weekend. Hopefully, we'll get to see their next regular season game played on Wednesday the 16th. That pretty well wraps up Gigi's news this week. But there is still plenty to look forward to in sports between the Beijing Olympics and, of course, Super Bowl Sunday. The NFL season is coming to a close this weekend with Super Bowl 56. This Super Bowl is a battle between two incredibly likable quarterbacks, Matt Stafford has been in the league long enough and deserves to be in the big game. And no one is going to argue that Joe Burrow is the coolest fresh face in the league. I'm not even going to hide it, but I definitely want to see the LA Rams win. The young superstars that make up the Bengals are wildly talented, but the Rams have a defense that will likely be the toughest that the Bengals have faced. With names like Aaron Donald and Von Miller on the Rams, we are sure to see Joe Burrow on the ground. That said, Stafford hasn't been on this stage before, and he's really going to need to focus on getting the ball to his receivers. Considering that his receivers are Cooper Cup and Odell Beckham Jr., he has options. I have no doubt that it will be a close game, and it will come down to talent, experience, and of course, who plays better football. I hope Everyone has a fantastic weekend and that you spend your Super Bowl Sunday with good company.
Usually, I would say to drink lots of water, but you all deserve to drink the beverage of your choice this weekend. Thank you very much for listening. Thank you to everyone involved in this week's show. Shout out to Shelly Shaw. Thank you so much to Gabrielle Musichka. Emma Williams is out there running with the wolves right now. Always rocking the garnet and gray. We got Jasmine McKnight. Music and sound design by Cameron Rankin. You've been listening to the Fulcrum Radio Show. I'm your host, Damian Piper. See you next week. <laughs>